0: This is the LarryInFishers.com podcast. I'm Larry Lannon, and I'm honored to have Victoria Garcia-Wilburn, uh, a member of the Indiana House of Representatives. She represents District 32, and if I saw the map correctly, you basically cover a southern – part of Carmel and western parts of Fishers. Would that be accurate?
1: That's exactly right. And a small portion of the Indianapolis community, which is known as Nora.
0: Oh, Nora. So you yes. have Nora. as so a little uh, post of Nora yes, on there do. in Marion County. All yeah. right. Well, it's good to have you here. Uh, you have just finished your first legislative session mm-hmm. in 2023. That's the long budget session. The yeah. short session is uh, to start just days after yep. we record this. And uh, I do want to ask... The first question is, and I love to ask this of anybody who's new in in, in the General Assembly, because you've served now in that one session. Biggest surprise, you ran for the office, you obviously investigated it, but once you were there and serving and have one session under your belt, biggest surprises?
1: The biggest surprise is actually how much I enjoyed it. Um, You know, I think a lot of people have perceptions about the General Assembly. I'm a problem solver. And I'm a relational builder. And I really learned those skill sets from my background, my professional background. So uh, but clinically, I'm an occupational therapist. Um, academically, I'm a researcher at IU Indianapolis. And so those skills of research and being a healthcare care provider um, really involve empathetic listening.
0: I want to talk about some of the yeah. things you were able to be involved in uh, in terms of solutions you talked about. But I I always ask this question. It doesn't matter which party you're in, but uh, when you find yourself in the minority mm-hmm. and uh, the majority sets the standard, they set the agenda and so forth, especially for Democrats in the House and, and, and Senate and the State House, not only are you in the minority, it's a supermajority. So mm-hmm. they pretty much run the, the whole operation. How... How difficult is it to operate and try to accomplish something or things while you're in the minority?
1: Well, Larry, I've been in the minority my whole life, right? So I'm a woman. I'm a woman of color. And I think navigating through life, you're pretty cognizant of those things. They're obvious. They're outward facing. Um, And so I've had to navigate situations, problems, issues – through that lens my whole life. And I really think that serves me because being in the minority makes, forces you to look at the commonalities. What do I have in common with the person sitting across the table from me that looks very different, that believes very different, that maybe lives their life very differently than mine? And so I think being in the minority allows me to see the commonalities. I do wish there was more of a balance but I don't ever believe that because I'm in the minority, it's a hindrance.
0: You know, the last time I interviewed someone in the General Assembly was when Fetty Kadora the senator, mm. um, represented this part of the uh, of uh, Representative F- Fisher's. Yeah. He no longer does, right. but. Uh, Talk to him about speaking a minority, I believe he is the only Muslim in the General mm-hmm. Assembly. He has a Palestinian background, so he has a lot of ties to the Middle East, a very troubled area of the world, especially today. So he always told me that he felt that he was able to give a perspective to his colleagues that – they didn't often get. Whether they listened or not is another thing, but he could provide a perspective nobody else had. The other thought, thing I found interesting about uh, Senator Kadora was when the Republicans would be in a, uh, at the very end of the session trying to, to get the numbers straight, mm-hmm. they didn't always trust each other. And Senator Kadora is maybe a Democrat, but he's, had, he's worked for Republican and, and Democratic city administrations and crunched numbers. And what I found interesting is they would trust his numbers before they would trust numbers of some of the people in their own party. So sometimes he was seen as an honest broker. So there are ways when yes. you're in the minority to uh, make a difference. It could be a variety of different ways.
1: Right. Yeah. And I think I bring a lot of um, a lot of qualities that are unique to the General Assembly, right? So there are very few of us in the General Assembly that are mothers to young children that are very few of us that also hold a second job because, quite honestly, the General Assembly is a citizen-led General Assembly, and we're supposed to bring that expertise from our professional lives into the Assembly. So I'm a minority in that part. I'm also the wife of a retired law enforcement officer, so that brings a whole nother perspective, being a healthcare provider, a whole nother perspective. And those things are really don't know a party affiliation. And I think that's important for people to understand is that those values of being a mom, being in the law enforcement family, having a professional career, those things do not hold political party affiliation.
0: Let's get into some issues. And I, there's one issue that really has fomented to the top of the, of the agenda. Um, since the last session and this has to do with something that in Indiana you know I've been lived in Indiana all my life and mm-hmm. worked in media off and on since the 19 early 1970s I can never remember that the allocation of water resources would ever be an issue but it looks like it's going to be and what caused this was concern up in the Lafayette area, Tippecanoe County, uh, where there was a huge development that's being planned in right. Boone County, not far from, from Hamilton. Right. There's a gigantic uh, development that the state is heavily involved in promoting in Boone County. But apparently the only way that can happen is if water resources are diverted mm-hmm. and, and from what I'm understanding, and you can maybe fill me in more, a lot of that or all that water is going to come from that part of the state's inner near, near Typoca, new County. Those people are very concerned about those water resources being taken away. I wonder, have you been looking at this and if so, where, where do you come down on all this?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think this definitely affects everybody in the state because it, it, talks about economic development and also ties in environmental issues, but really what I want to hone in on is that you heard me say I'm a researcher. The specific type of research that I do is called community-engaged research. And so I think that was problem zero. You have to get the input from the community. That is the first step to responsible economic development. We would have mitigated so many of these issues had we just asked the citizenry what their thoughts were about Plan A, B, and C. And so to me, that is just a reminder that I work for you. You have access to me in my office to tell me about all of your issues. I can't guarantee that I can help with every single one of them, but you're my boss, essentially. And if you're not coming to me and I'm not asking, which is why I am a very big, huge proponent of holding town halls, I'm a huge proponent of holding office hours when I'm not in session so that people can know that I'm accessible, that I can understand their needs in the community, and that includes development.
0: You know, that's an interesting point you make because the uh, Indiana Economic Development Operation Mm -hmm. often uh, operates in something less than a transparent way. They say they have to do that in order to have the, the, the secrecy they need to have uh, to make you know bids and to, to try to attract economic development. Yet uh, I have seen this happen where people have said, you know, you, you really don't have the same sort of transparency requirements mm-hmm. other parts of state government have. Mm-hmm. Is it, do you think that has any impact on, on this situation?
1: I mean, I think transparency is paramount in any um, state-run agency, and we need more of that. Um, those of us that assume political office, we have to be transparent because those things will come out in various ways. I think we have seen that with different members um, this past summer, where you know those things that we think um, are kept in the dark, they will eventually be brought to light. And so we could mitigate all of that when we're transparent in the front end but that requires humility right that requires a certain amount of maybe i didn't approach this the right way and here's how i'll course correct but i'm a huge proponent of transparent transparency both professionally and personally
0: so is there enough water to go around
1: I guess we'll see what the study says. <laughs> okay,
0: so you're waiting. You're <laughs> waiting on the data. Good answer. Yes. <laughs> I, I remember. Gosh, this this happened a long time ago. It's, it, it was a big deal at the time. We've most of us forgotten about that. Remember when Amazon was going to
1: That's right.
0: expand into two different places? It's a long story how that mm-hmm. ended up. But Indiana put its bid in, and what I remember is that, and I can't remember exactly how it was done. It was through IEDC or Chambers of Commerce. But when the bid went in, and it was, it didn't make it. I was trying to figure out what did the state and local governments offer. Mm-hmm. Never could find out. Mm-hmm. Now in other states it was transparent. Here we couldn't find out what what the what the bid was. And I took the position as a reporter that you know I mean okay if you wanted to keep it secret for a while that's fine. But once it's over, why can't? Right. These local governments and state government tell us what tax resources and other resources, state resources, were offered to Amazon, and we still don't know the answer to that question.
1: Right. I mean, I think, again, my expertise as a researcher, some of these things require root cause analysis, and we know that we're better in our future planning when we understand what the barrier was the first time. And so, you know, for me, how I interpret that is um, I'm committed to having good, positive, productive, collaborative relationships with my um, communities that I represent. So with Mayor Fadness, newly elected Mayor Finkum, Mayor Joe Hogsett, it's critical for me to understand what is important on their dockets so I can see how we can be collaborative at the state and local level. Moving
0: on to another issue, I've uh, covered education extensively throughout my journalism Mm -hmm. career. And there has been an issue that has now floated up to the top of the legislative agenda. Uh, The the majority says they're not going to do very much this session, but I'm seeing some issues that look fairly important. One of the most important ones, as far as issues are concerned, has to do with education and some data that has been coming forth, that there are a number of third graders that are not testing at a minimum level as far as their reading abilities are mm-hmm. concerned, and you know the data that I have seen is that if basically if a third grader cannot get to a certain level of reading proficiency, it's going to be a struggle as they move along in, in education later on. That's what the experts have been saying to me. Uh, there have been a lot of solutions offered. One has been. By some legislators to just simply, uh, you know, retain that person, not let them go to the fourth grade, stay in third grade another year. A lot of educators have said, "Well, that causes a whole long list of other problems if you do that on a on on a large basis." So, from what you know about this, uh, if this comes up before the House, how how would you approach this issue?
1: Mm-hmm. That's a great question, and you know, again, I think. Similarly related to the the reason why there's a supermajority, right, and why we need to return to balance um, supermajority. We've had that for what almost two decades now. The parameters around education, educational testing, have been changing, so it's hard to really understand what the true ethos of the problem is when the standards keep changing. Um, again, you know, just last session, we implemented now science of reading. So then here's another um, another change to the educational instruction approaches, et cetera. So, you know, as a mom, I'll just personally um, kind of provide you some context about why the scope of reading can be complex for learners for different reasons. I have two special ability learners um, as children and Having difficulty reading was part of that. So I have um, a child with a sen- um, auditory processing disorder and a child with a visual processing disorder. Those aren't easily identified, and what it looks like is just some you know a child, a student having difficulty reading. My heart breaks for probably the hundreds, maybe thousands of children who are not properly diagnosed and assessed to what their special ability might be um which is why special education is always so important to me and I'm thinking about special education instructions when I look at any sort of educational piece of legislation. So when I see that I think what are we missing? And what and, and I hate to always bring up covid, but what have we missed because of covid? There was tr- there was obviously not traditional instruction happening at critical markers for our children. I have a now fifth grader. When he was um, learning how to read, it was during the pandemic. His first grade and his second grade were disrupted. Let me tell you a little bit about what trauma does to the brain. That was a traumatic disruption to a child's everyday life. When your brain as a child is trying to make sense of its immediate surroundings, it's literally impossible for your brain to learn. And so I want to do, again, a root cause analysis. This is a multifactorial problem. It is not a one-size-fits-all issue. And so we need to be responsible, we need to investigate, and we need to tread lightly about how we deal with reading proficiencies in the future.
0: Well, I can only say a couple of things. Number one is, you know... I when I started reading about this, and mm-hmm. the very good reporters at the State House who are writing about it, first thing that came to my mind was COVID. How much learning setback did that cause some of these students? But the bigger one is one you brought up, and I still think we don't talk about this enough. I've covered education now for 12 years locally. And the state keeps changing the test. And when you keep changing the test, you don't have good historical data.
1: You don't have any validity or reliability, which are two phrases that I use all the time as a researcher. So it's like you're starting a new study all the time. Gosh, and that would be considered quack science if I tried to do that right as a researcher. So I think we need to be honest with ourselves. And again, that involves humility and transparency. This might be the two words, the theme words of our talk today. It, it requires a, a dose of humility to say, you know what, maybe we didn't get it right. And how are we gonna provide consistency in measuring the outcomes moving forward?
0: I remember and we, were, we were in the depths of, of dealing with the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you looked on YouTube or any of these other platforms where people post videos, you would see these nurses who would finish a shift and they would just unload on people about what it's like and, you know, what it was like to see so many patients so sick and so many patients dying early on right. in the pandemic. And and obviously, a lot sadly, we lost a lot of good hospital nurses. They just couldn't take it anymore. They went to some other form of nursing and a lot of them did that. And there is still a, is a need for hospital nurses right now. There's a shortage of that. But I think this idea of, of mental health and how it has impacted mental health, having gone through that, and just mental health in general. And you say, you know, you have a husband who is a retired uh, Officer of Public Safety and Fishers, I will say one thing. Mayor Fadness, the fire chief, the police chief have always emphasized okay, you guys are supposed to be rough and tough people if you're on the fire department or the police department. But you guys are going to have issues and you've got to be, you got to let us know if you do. If you've got a mental health issue, we want to deal with it. And uh, those are people who certainly. You know, I, I just deal with it. I just knew a lot of police officers. You know, I c- covered a police beat in Indianapolis for years and and, I d- and and other places. And every police officer would tell you, you spend eight hours a day seeing the worst parts of life. That's right. And, uh, you, know, you know, something like a pandemic, it's even worse That's you right. know, when that happens. And ambulance, drivers, and fire, all of them have to deal with that. The reason I bring all this up is that you tried to use this expertise you've talked about to pass a measure in the last your session about mental health. So tell us what you did or were instrumental in doing.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you for um, commending Mayor Fadness and Chief Arusso and Chief Gebhardt. Um, They were huge supporters of the bill. And I just really thank thank them for their time and their testimonies and making sure that this bill passed unanimously. So um, this is really the reason I came into office My husband um, served bravely for 13 years with IMPD, and we are not shy about our story and trajectory with post-traumatic stress disorder. He was involved in two critical incidences that um, were life-changing for both him and um, the people that were disrupting peace in our community. And additionally, he was a public information officer. And as you said, seeing the most horrific things around the city The reason a public information officer is deployed is because the media is interested in covering whatever grave and tragic incidents had occurred. So you can imagine. So there was a lot of small T traumas, is what we in the clinical world say, and there was a couple big T traumas to the point where that bucket was overflowing. And I remember at the time feeling like we were on an island. Um, We have come so far in regards to mental health acceptance and trying to confront stigma. But you know, 10 years ago, we were at a different place, and it was the toughen up mentality, get back on the horse mentality. Um, my husband often dealt with night terrors, which is a common symptom in PTSD, inability to concentrate, and inability to com- compartmentalize, which is a necessary function. And so it was hard for him to turn off what we call Condition Red, even when he was in our household. And I felt alone, and I felt scared, and I felt powerless, and he felt the same. We had to make the critical decision to admit that we were struggling and really get him the help he needed, and I am just so proud of his recovery and his commitment to um, addressing his chronic PTSD, and counseling will be a part of his everyday life. Um, We know this um, until the day we die, but we're going to use that you know, tragedy to help benefit others. And so when I authored that piece of legislation, I sat down with the community. I sat down with our local chiefs, our local FOPs, um, spouses, officers, firefighters themselves. And I heard compelling stories about how they too have dealt with acute PTSD or PTSI, um, post-traumatic stress injury. And they were really um, the reasons why I wrote this bill. And so it passed unanimously. Both chambers um, passed unanimously at final signing. The governor signed it. And it was just an incredible mountaintop moment to finally say we use this really dark thing so that it's no longer dark anymore. Um, So with the passage of this bill in 2025, every single officer Despite size of department, despite resources in the department, this is a state-funded initiative, will receive mental and behavioral health training with a special emphasis on suicide prevention in the comfort of their own squad car or home in a place that's confidential so that they can check in with themselves. It's also critical that administration is able to understand the signs and symptoms of when their um, officers or um, firefighters are in mental distress. So they'll receive special training when they go to their chief's academy on how to identify. So it was, um, I feel like, Larry, if I do anything else in the house, it will be cherries on top because it was such a critical piece of legislation and um, I just really can't believe that we got it done. But I what I think it proves is that when you believe in what you're doing, when you can bring others around you, and when you can do it in a way that is respectful and focuses on the issue, anything is possible.
0: Well, I think there's I've, – I've said this for a long time, and I've said this in the Fisher City Council, the legislature, wherever you might be. When you have both parties come together and support something, that that's a very important statement. Yes. That there's such agreement that something needs to be done to both parties no, no matter what your political philosophy might be, this is something good for the community. Whether it's the city council or legislature, that's a great example of unanimous passage of a bill, which not too many bills get that. And then you, you were able to you were able to get that done. There's something else you were able to do in firearms legislation. Is to be blunt difficult to pass yes. in the Indiana General Assembly, a lot of parts of the state and the even the U.S. Congress. Firearms legislation gets pushed back almost immediately, what it might be. And I think there was an incident just recently. There were some people at the, I think it was a Castleton Square Mall that were yeah. just recently arrested. They were arrested, not convicted yet, but they were arrested with the allegation and charge is that uh, these people had converted firearms, regular firearms into machine guns, right. you were in, involved in a, a legislation uh, or instrumental in passing mm-hmm. legislation that dealt with gl- Glocks in particular. Tell us about that.
1: Yes. So again, this, this piece of legislation came out of listening to my community. Um, and I am unashamed about my support for law enforcement officers. Uh, I was hearing from our chiefs that people were 3D printing these Glock switches And selling them and making a single shot um, weapon more lethal by now converting it to an automatic firearm. Um, And so this is already banned federally, but we don't we didn't yet have the state authority match to be able to um, charge more expeditiously. We'd had to wait for a federal prosecutor and that can be lengthy. And so. I let my colleague, who I have so much respect for and really consider him one of my mentors, Representative Mitch Gore, who's also in law enforcement, I said, I have this idea. And he said, that's a priority area for me. And I said, why don't you carry it? Because I'm a first term (laughs) representative and I might not know what I'm doing, but I'll help. And he really did. We worked this bill together. Um, And so he authored it. I was the first co-author. We met with countless stakeholders, um, including so many colleagues across the aisle to get this done. And again, I think it speaks to when something is a no brain solution, parties will come together even when it relates to firearms we can all agree that this is a dangerous slippery slope and that we should have some local authority to um charge criminals with this and so um was so proud of that passing for him for me um really understanding how we can support law enforcement officers in a more greater capacity in the absence of permit to carry is a huge issue for me. And so I, you know, I will be working um, alongside my colleague, um, Mitch Gore, and others who help um, author legislation when it regards to firearm safety. I mean, yes. I mean a
0: single fire, firearm, the one at a time, and an automatic weapon with the damage that is done, It can't even compare the two. Once you get automatic weapons, right. the damage that can be done is, is severe. The Indianapolis Star is certainly not what it once was. There's a much smaller reporting staff there. And I've criticized them on occasion, and I've also praised them on occasion. One thing about the STARS, they've taken the resources they do have, and they continue to have an investigative unit, and mm-hmm. they still do investigative work. And you followed up on a series of stories they did that dealt with the Department of Child Services, right? which, you know, has that's been a department of state government that there's been a lot of turnover there. It's tough work. It's tough work. A lot work. of young people there, so you, people are in and out. Uh, So it's been very hard to keep the staff at the level that they want it to be and at the expertise level they want it to be. But you were also involved in legislation related to that series. Talk about that. Yes.
1: Yeah, I mean, this was my first conference committee. um, And so I think there's a lot of complexities when it goes to that, too. And so um, I really was trying to understand why we would need to give immunity to residential communities that are um, really dealing with our most vulnerable children because there is that ground could be ripe for, gosh, several different things. And giving immunity to um, really any organization, any any entity is dangerous. And so I was really trying to wrap my head around why we would do this, right? And so I wasn't able to vote, give my yes vote for... um, this issue that we were, we were looking at in conference committee. And as um, the excellent reporting that was done with the STAR continued to unfold, it, it really pointed out a lot of loopholes. And so I am not one to criticize DCS, but I am one to empower individuals to do good work and to do it in the right way. So there are a couple pieces of legislation that um, I will be putting forth in in language, um, still TBD on if it will be a bill or an amendment. And I'm working very closely with um, the chairman of Family and Children's Services, which I also serve as a member on, on getting it just right. Because this is not about the next headline. This is about finding right solutions. And so we recognize that in residential communities, DCS does have the authority um, to investigate claims up to the age of 21. And why that's critical is that um, there are many people that support residential communities and the children that are there are very vulnerable, potentially ripe for manipulation, power dynamics and abuse. And while they're in state custody, we need to keep them safe. Because probably, I'm going to guess, that the majority of these children have suffered traumas of their own. And so we don't want to keep re-traumatizing our most vulnerable. We have to protect them. And I know DCS wants to protect them. So we need to make sure that these laws are clear, that the training and the protocols when a call is made for suspected abuse or neglect are clear, And people can do their jobs effectively. And that's what I really care about. It's not about blaming. It's about empowering. But I don't want one more child to fall victim on my watch.
0: There's one question I've always wanted to ask an elected representative at the state house, a member of the general assembly. So I'm going to ask you, everybody I know and myself, as far back as I can remember, we get these mailings from our state senator and our state rep. Asking us to answer a series of questions. My, I guess the first thing I would ask you is, of all of these that you send out, uh, how many actually come back?
1: Oh, gosh. I would say um – and I can't speak for every elected official. Just an idea, yeah. yeah. But I mean, I read everyone. Okay. So I, I need my the listeners to know that that you'll see in, you know on the wide shot that they have. There's a stack of papers on the left hand side of my desk, and those are the surveys that come back. So I would say we probably, a rough estimate, maybe get five to ten percent of those back. Okay, um, in survey research, thirty percent is a good sample size. So we've got work to do because um, I want to know about you know general common themes, but I read every single one of those.
0: So you answered my second question <laughs> was exactly how much do you pay attention to them? If you read every one, obviously you, you do value this, but you realize it's a small sample of the people. Exactly. And I've never talked to any elected official that didn't want to know what their constituents right. think, even if they don't always vote that way, right. they want to know what their constituents think. And it's, it's hard to, to gauge that, but you have to get data. You have to go meet them in town halls. You have to read what responses you get, even if it's a small percentage. I have one other question, uh, I I've been reading two different things about what's going on in the legislature in this respect. I read an article recently about uh, how so many members of the General Assembly are, seek, are seeking not to be reelected, seek not will not mm-hmm. seek reelection. To give an example of a Democrat down at Evansville named Ryan Hatfield He wants to run for judge locally down in Vandenberg County, and he's been there, I think, 10, 12 years, something like that, in the legislature. Uh, So that was one example somebody gave of a a number of members of both parties who are just deciding to walk away from the General Assembly. Then I read another article by Nikki Kelly, who's covered the State House longer than any single reporter, who says – This is not unusual that people leave the legislature all the time. It is a citizen legislature. Maybe they're getting a better opportunity with a judgeship or something in the private sector that they want to go to. And maybe being in the General Assembly doesn't fit well with that. Just in talking to your colleagues, what's your view of people wanting to serve in a legislature? Do you think there are a lot of defections? I mean, I know you're new, but just based on what you've seen, what's your view of all this?
1: Well, I think, you know, with the announcement of Representative Hatfield not seeking re-election, it is a huge loss for our caucus. I do want to say that most importantly, he's been an amazing mentor to me. Um he has a phenomenal reputation in the state house, and he also has a new small family. Okay, so he's also the father of three, and um, that's a—it's a bit of a commute from Evansville to Indianapolis, is it not? And so, it's a new chapter in his life. And when um, when seasons change, sometimes uh, professions change too. But he has sh- taken his service and has done amazing things for the betterment of our state. But I just think that speaks to the seasonality of people's lives. Um, what I have found interesting is that you know. Looking on the outside in, people think there's this, um, like the state government operates just like the federal government does. And it's really not true. It's not true at all. And um, it is a sacrifice. It's a sacrifice of time for your family. It's about really small local issues um, that don't get a lot of notoriety. Um, I got the advice from Speaker Houston, people won't remember your name in 10 years. And that keeps things in perspective. And so I want to do the most good that I can in the days that I have, which are numbered. They're numbered for all of us. We don't know how long that is. As a reminder, I work for you. So you get to decide how well I'm doing my job every two years. It's kind of exhausting, but I'm a glutton for punishment. Um, So I enjoy this job and I hope to be reelected. I'm seeking reelection and I'm excited about the campaign season. But first, I have a very important legislative session to attend to, and I will be laser-focused on that.
0: And yeah, members of the House have to seek re-election every two years, the Senate every four years. So you do have—I mean, it's almost like once the election's over, you're organizing your next campaign, and you're—as as well as trying to do your work in the legislature. It is a big job.
1: It is, and it holds me accountable to always doing the right thing at the right way for the right reason.
0: Anything you would uh, like to add before we wrap this up?
1: Yeah, I think I'm just looking forward to engaging with more of my constituents this year. Um, I have been a, a pretty semi-regular face in Fishers over the summer, as well as Carmel. I take my responsibility and leadership very seriously. And if there's anything that I um, you want me to hear, please email me at h32 at Gov.
0: Yeah, it's not hard to find. You just just Google, you'll find your state rep, and you can Google pretty. If you didn't pick that up, you can you can Google pretty quickly. Uh, Victoria Garcia Wilburn, member of the Indiana House of Representatives. Uh, thank you so much for your time today.
1: Thank you, Larry. It was a joy being with you.